The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Start! You can call me Bruce. Nolan is standing by. Hey, wacky Bruce! Coming to you from an undisclosed location, this is the Bruce Exclusive. And here's your host, Bruce Nolan. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to another edition of the Bruce Exclusive. A Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. You know, the foundational pillars of Bruceism are being put to the test this week because the Buffalo Bills defeated the Miami Dolphins 35 to nothing this past Sunday. But yet this week feels different than a typical 35 to nothing victory would feel. And it's because of the play of the $258 million man, Josh Allen. So we're going to have a little discussion about the place I personally find myself in, why I'm there, and how I got there. And I hope, potentially, that it will help you if I explain it. But the first thing we need to start with is... One of the foundational pieces of Bruceism, and that is how and why are more important interrogatives than what? How and why are more important interrogatives than what? How and why you won a game is more important than the fact that you won a game. How and why you lost a game is more important than the fact that you lost it. And maybe you don't want to hear this right off the bat. You don't want to talk about it. Maybe you're a, we won 35 to nothing, stop talking about anything concerning. Maybe you're that place. And if you're in that place, that's okay. But might I offer that potentially the reason you're in that place is because A, you're frustrated and don't want to hear any criticism. Maybe you are not well equipped to have the conversation Because you watched the game, you checked out, you weren't even paying attention, you weren't analyzing really what was going on because you were just so happy about the 35 to nothing victory, or you don't like where it might lead. 
And I might offer that if you really look inside yourself, that might be true for some of you out there. What might be true is I don't want to have a conversation about things that might be concerning despite a victory because I don't like where that road goes. I don't want to have a discussion about the possibility that Josh Allen isn't playing well right now. Aside from, yeah, well, he'll, he'll do better. That's all I want to talk about. He'll do better. Because I don't want to go down that road. I don't want to go down the what if he doesn't get better road. And I'm here to tell you it's okay. We can have that conversation and not go all the way down that road. You don't have to take every single thing out to its logical conclusion and endgame. There's still data yet to come. We get so obsessed with prognosticating things that we refuse to just be. We refuse to just be right here. Now, I understand that how and why are more important interrogatives than what? Because they're more predictive. And I get that. But those things have to be balanced against the fact that too often we predict too far out with too small of a sample size. In this case, two games. That's right. I used four instances of the word two there. The last one spelled differently because I'm clever like that. You can acknowledge what's going on right now without going all the way out to its logical end game. And that's the space where I am right now. I am in the space between excuses and panic. And I want to talk about that space where I am. I want to tell you how I got there. I'm in the spot between excuses and panic. On one end of the spectrum is excuses. It's writing it off. It's failing to acknowledge what is right in front of our face. Failing to acknowledge what actually happened. Writing it off. All the other end of the spectrum is panic. Because what you've done is you've taken the opposite approach. Instead of putting no weight into what you've seen, now you've put too much weight into what you've seen. As if the thing that you've already seen is all you're ever going to see moving forward. In one case, you've ignored the evidence. In the other case, you've extrapolated it all the way out to its absolute end game. You have played what's the worst that can happen, have accepted that outcome as definitive reality, and then you have emotionally responded to that. You have panicked. But I'm not there. I'm in a different space. I'm in that space. And you might think that that space doesn't make sense. The space between excuses and panic doesn't make sense because it means I'm not really committing to anything. But the truth is that on one side, the panic comes from reacting to data points instead of data trends. On the other side, you're dismissive of data entirely because they're not parts of a trend. Neither one of these things is ideal. We want to pick a side because we don't like the discomfort that comes from the middle. We feel wishy-washy or we feel like we're on the fence, but we're not. You can simultaneously accept that what you've seen is not great without automatically extrapolating it out to its complete end game. You can absolutely do those things. A lot of the things that you think are paradoxes are really not. We don't do a good job in this society of recognizing that there aren't as many paradoxes in the world as we think there are. 
multiple things, in this case, two things, can simultaneously exist and not be conflictual with each other. We invent paradoxes and we allow ourselves to be convinced of paradoxes because we intrinsically want to be on a side. We want to pick a side. There are no sides here. It's not excuses or panic. There's a space between excuses and panic. And it comes from this, the worry algorithm. If you remember correctly, this offseason, I did a podcast with Nick Geary, now my co-host on Food for Thought, in which we talked about players potentially not breaking out this season for the Buffalo Bills. Talked about Dawson Knox, Cody Ford, Ed Oliver. What if they don't break out? And we did something of a mental exercise that I created a long time ago called the worry algorithm. The worry algorithm is the probability of an outcome occurring multiplied by the impact of that outcome occurring. Each one has four sections. So the probability of the outcome occurring, highly probable, somewhat probable, somewhat improbable, highly improbable. And the outcome, highly problematic, somewhat problematic, somewhat unproblematic, or highly improblematic. And each one of those is given a number and you multiply them. It is commonly used in a non-psychological method to examine risk in the business world. Now, it should be noted as a disclaimer, I am not your therapist. I am here to share with you things that I have constructed myself. A lot of these bruisisms, the expectations minus reality equals disappointment, how and why are more important interrogatives than what, the worry algorithm, all these bruisisms, these are things that I created to help me make sense of the world. So I share them with you because I'm a very structured individual and I need these things. I need these things to tether me down so I can stay level. Oh, Bruce, how do you stay level all the time? That's how I stay level. I created these things and then I share them with you. I am not your therapist. I am not able to recommend personal exercises that will help you. But that's how I got to here. I sat down. I said, okay, Josh Allen, what is the probability that he's just completely regressed? He's 2019 Josh Allen again, which I've already said 2019 Josh Allen is not the level of play that I think is worthy of a massive contract extension. Certainly not $258 million. What are the chances of that happening? I said, that's somewhat improbable. It's not impossible for someone to regress, but it seems somewhat improbable. What's the impact if it does happen? To the team, high. To me personally, not super high. I try not to emotionally tie myself to the outcome of my favorite team because that's just too much. My wife, my family, people I'm close to, they deserve better than to have my emotions swung back and forth by the outcome of a football game on Sunday. But for the team, it's highly problematic. Attaching yourself to a quarterback who regressed is highly problematic. So if one of those things is highly problematic, which is a four, and the other one's somewhat improbable, which is a two, then my worry quotient, my worry product is eight. Highest is 16, lowest is one. Eight's right in the middle. Eight's like, meh, that's fine. You know, it could happen, it could not. I'm not overly worried yet. Ironically enough, eight is the space between 
excuses and panic. If you're all the way at the bottom end of the spectrum, you might just write off what we've seen from Josh Allen. If you're all the way at the top, you might be freaking out. Either you're writing off or you're freaking out. Neither one of those things is where I am. So I want to share that in my opening monologue. Technically, the entire pod is a monologue. But I want to share that with you. That's where I'm at. That's how I got there. And I think it's a perfectly reasonable spot to be. Well, Bruce, when do you panic? I mean, never really panic. I said before that three games is a trend. So what's two games? If three games is a trend, what is two games? Two games for me is a let's start looking, but let's not draw any overly hard and fast conclusions that we can't or won't unlearn. The problem with drawing hard and fast conclusions after two games is that sometimes they're difficult to unlearn. Sometimes that narrative sticks around a lot longer than it should because it really wasn't as accurate as you thought it was because it was based on sample size that was too small. Sometimes you'll see this from people who don't watch a certain team and then they pick one nationally televised game to watch that team and they come away with a conclusion from that one game, maybe early in the season. Maybe it's the opening Game of the season. In this case, it was Cowboys-Bucks. They watch that game. They come away with a conclusion about Ezekiel Elliott, for example, and his usage in the offense. Well, they don't watch any more Cowboys games. So six weeks from now, they're still hanging on to an narrative that shouldn't have been formed initially. It wasn't a bad narrative. It was a narrative that never should have been existing in the first place because it was based on insufficient data. But sometimes we don't unlearn them Because we never should have formed them to begin with. Instead, I would offer that two weeks, two games, isn't a trend. It's a, let's start looking. And there is one thing that I would like to start looking at. Aside from Josh Allen. I want to start looking at the Buffalo Bills run game. The Buffalo Bills rushing offense through week two. This is from Zach Vaughn who posted this on Twitter and got the information from Pro Football Reference. Zach is a member of Buffalo Fanatics. In 2020, through the first two weeks, it was 55 carries for 210 yards and a touchdown. 3.8 yards per carry. The Bills' rushing offense through week two of 2021 is also 55 carries, but for 260 yards and three touchdowns, 4.7 yards per carry. So the Bills are running the ball better. Going into the year, we said, how are they going to run the ball better? The running backs are the same. The offensive line's the same. We thought maybe it was a scheme. So let's start tackling. Now that we can say, okay, through two weeks, the Bills are running the ball better. It's something to look at. It's not a trend yet because it's three games for a trend, in my opinion. But it's something to look at. Is the scheme better? Are they doing more gap runs? Pin and pull was a common mantra this offseason, I actually had to spend some time explaining what a pin and pull was because I think it was kind of a buzzword there for a minute. But the Bills haven't really done anything different when it comes to scheming zone versus gap runs. I feel like I was almost whispering that because I've been yelling this entire pod. But this year, 19 zone runs, five gap runs. Last year, in total, 
97 zone runs, 64 gap runs. In 2019, before the flip, 69 zone runs, 84 gap runs. Hmm. These are Devin Singletary's stats. Why are we only using Devin Singletary? Because he's the only one with enough carries. If I start putting in Zach Moss and Matt Breida, now we're getting even smaller sample size than two games. So those are Devin Singletary's runs over the last three seasons. So it's not that they're running less zone. That's not it. Well, Bruce, maybe it's light boxes. That was a big talking point with the Devin Singletary, Frank Gore discussion. One of them was running against light boxes. The other one wasn't. Maybe it's that. No. Devin Singletary ran against eight plus man boxes 4.49% of the time in 2020. Thus far in 2021, he's running against eight man boxes or more 8.33% of the time. So that's not it. Okay, so it's not scheme and it's not box count. Maybe it's Devin Singletary, right? Maybe Devin Singletary is just better than he was. Well, Devin Singletary has always been a fairly reasonable yards after contact guy. Does a good job breaking tackles, being slippery. His yards after contact per attempt is at an all-time low this year. In 19, it was 3.03. In 2020, it was 3.17. In 2021, it was 2.42. Again, not a trend yet. Just something to look at. Meanwhile, his yards before contact per attempt are pretty good. In 2021... He has thus far averaged 5.7 yards before contact per attempt. That's fantastic. In 2020, he averaged 1.5 yards before contact per attempt. In 2019, 2.7 yards before contact per attempt. He's getting tackled and touched farther down the field than he was before. But he's actually getting less yards after contact. So it's not that Devin Singletary is markedly better than he was. He's looked pretty good from a vision standpoint, decisiveness, making the right cuts. But vision was never his problem to begin with. Coming out of college, he was a vision and contact balance sort of guy. So that's a contributing factor. But might I say, based on the so far amount of data we have, that the offensive line blocking is just better than it was. The run blocking is better. I'm not saying Devin Singletary isn't also better. He might be. But right now, it looks like the most significant cause thus far, let's keep an eye on it, has been run blocking. I think having the offensive line together for an entire offseason is something that matters. I think having Cody Ford at right guard, I think matters because he's an exceptional run blocker. I think having John Feliciano next to Deion Dawkins is good. He is also a good run blocker. So I think it's important to touch base on this thing and go, the Bills are running the ball better. Why? Well, so far, we have some leanings. We don't have definitive conclusions because we don't draw definitive conclusions after two weeks. But so far, my leaning is the run blocking has improved. And it's not due to an increase in personnel. It's not due to a scheme change. Overwhelmingly, obviously, there's 
it's more than just zone and gap runs, right? But it's not an overwhelming difference to the point where the entire identity of the run game was flipped. So that's not it. We are going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We got more stuff to talk about. Stick with me. We'll be right back. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. Last week, we did a breakout watch with Oliver, Ford, Knox, Edmonds. We're keeping an eye on these players to see if we're going to get the step forward that we wanted to from them. So I went back and watched them again. I have a feeling I'm going to be watching these four players quite a bit. And wouldn't you know it, overall, they were good again. Ed Oliver was, again, very, very good. Dawson Knox, again, no drops. Made a difficult, difficult catch in the end zone. And I actually think, I mentioned this on Twitter, I think that there's a reasonable chance that a good offensive game plan against the Washington football team includes manufactured touches or things that are designed to run through Dawson Knox. A lot of times when you find teams with a really good front four, they don't blitz because like we don't need to. We want to make sure that we have as many men in coverage as humanly possible because we need the bodies to flood the lanes. If we could rush with three and get there, we would do that. But they have a good front four, so they won't blitz. Washington doesn't do that. Washington blitz because they want those front four to get as many one-on-ones as humanly possible. They say, goodness gracious, Chase Young is amazing. Even when you double-team him, he's good. Imagine how much better he'll be if you can't double-team him. That's their line of thinking. So they're going to blitz anyway, even though they have a really good front four. Dawson Knox is a potential response to that. Some tight end screen work would be good. Flexing him out to be able to get a linebacker out of the box, to be able to make blitzes easier to identify, that would help. It is important that we not immediately write him off because there are situational usages for tight ends. So I would be interested to see if Dawson Knox is going to be part of the game plan this week against the Washington football team. Tremaine Edmonds didn't come back into the game after he left with cramps. But again, looked good. Again, looked decisive. 
Cody Ford, not as good as he was week one when I mentioned he was arguably the Bills' best offensive lineman. Wasn't as good that time around. What was perfectly reasonable again? Not to the point where I think he's a liability. So overall, breakout watch, thumbs up. We're still on. Ed Oliver has been very, very, very good this year through two games. But we have plurality pie to dish out in this game. We're going to start with Leslie Frazier, 22% of the plurality pie. Leslie Frazier absolutely deserves this piece. I think there's a lot of people that when the defense doesn't play well, the first thing they say is Leslie Frazier. But Leslie Frazier understood the assignment. We mentioned all the way up to this game that the key for beating the Dolphins was to get Tua to hold the ball. Now, he wasn't on the field overly long, but that's exactly what we saw. We saw pressure put on him, and we saw the easy, quick answers to pressure taken off the menu. On the play where Tua got hurt, he wanted the slant, but Tremaine Edmonds dropped into coverage right in front of it. If you're going to bring blitzes, understand that there are going to be quick answers in offensive schemes. Get in front of them. When you have Tua, look to his answer and go, I can't throw that, I'll be picked. Now all of a sudden, he'll start panicking. And that's exactly what happened. So Leslie Frazier designed the right game plan for the right quarterback. There is an old adage that you blitz young quarterbacks and you play coverage against more experienced quarterbacks. And it's an old adage for a reason. It's a saying for a reason. It holds true in a lot of cases. It holds true with Taylor Heineke. Taylor Heineke against the Blitz, not as good. The more mature you get as a quarterback, the less likely it is for a game plan to include, let's light him up, baby. Because you've seen it. You know where your answers are. You have a good handle for the scheme. You're not trying to make plays with your legs and get out of trouble with your legs and then look to throw which is what happens a lot of times with young athletic quarterbacks. The first thing they think when they see trouble is get out of trouble with my legs. Then I can potentially look up once I've cleared trouble. I can look up and see if there's someone to throw. But the older a quarterback gets, the more experience they get. A lot of times they're like, oh, I, I can get out of trouble with my arm. I don't have to. Leslie Frazier, 22%. Taron Johnson, 16%. Contract year Taron Johnson is what I thought we were going to see second year Taron Johnson. For those of you who haven't been following my podcast for a very long time, after rookie year Taron Johnson, I was stoked. I was like, yes, he's a monster. Let's go. And then year two and year three were meh for him. Contract year Taron Johnson is what I thought we were going to get second year Taron Johnson. I am so excited about Taron Johnson's play thus far this year. Matt Milano, 15%. Matt Milano as an interior pass rusher is an absolute revelation. Having someone who can play the run and fill gaps the way Matt Milano can, cover linebackers and also blitz, ladies and gentlemen, that contract is two games in. It's already a steal for Matt Milano. A.J. Epinesa, 14%. A.J. Epinesa, was tied for the NFL lead in pressures this week. He only played 34 snaps. 
That was one of the most efficient pass rush games I've ever seen in my life. Oh, but Bruce, he didn't get a sack. This is why sacks aren't everything. The next time someone tells you, oh, sacks, sacks are all that matter, show them the game tape. With A.J. Epinesa this week against the Miami Dolphins. He ended up with one tackle. That was his stat line. Tell me he wasn't disruptive. You can't. Gregory Rousseau, 9%. Yeah, Gregory Rousseau got two sacks. A.J. Epinesa was better. And I want to have a chat about this. Pressure off an offense's right side is not less valuable than pressure off an offense's left side. Get your head out of that thinking. It's not true. We oftentimes think, well, it's a blind side. He can't see it coming. Sometimes it's good that we see it coming. We want the quarterback to panic. In addition, the right side can force an alteration of the throwing motion of a right-handed quarterback. If your right tackle is being pushed back into you, you can see it. And you start to try and accommodate for it with your throwing motion because you don't want to wind up your throwing motion and end up hitting your offensive tackle in the back of the head. So you end up trying to get the ball out, but the throwing motion's weird. Forces inaccurate passes. Sometimes, ignorance is bliss. Your left tackle's kind of getting pushed back into you, but you don't see it. And your back's to them anyway. Sometimes, pressure from the offense's right side is better than pressure from the offense's left side. I was thinking about it as I was watching A.J. Epinesa and Gregory Rousseau do work, son from the offense's right side against the Miami Dolphins. Gregory Rousseau, 9%. Other, 24%. So, Leslie Frazier, 22%. Taron Johnson, 16%. Matt Milano, 15%. A.G. Epinesa, 14%. Gregory Rousseau, 9%. Other, 24%. The plurality pie has been baked. Hot and fresh out the kitchen. Let's pull up some emails. The first email comes from Evan, and I already know what it's going to look like because Evan sends ridiculous almighty takes every single week because that's what he does. That's the shtick. The Buffalo Bills defensive resurgence continues, he says, and a hooded Brian Dable cackles to Taylor Heineke in a dimly lit tunnel. Oh, I'm afraid the Earhart Perkins offense will be quite operational when Chase Young and your defensive line arrive. Bills win 41 to nothing. Josh Allen disappoints with only 290 yards passing, adds 40 yards rushing. Devin and Zach have 200 total yards from scrimmage. Groot bats a pass, giving Starr his second career interception. Lowest point is Matt Hawk shanking a punt for negative yards in an Orchard Park wind gust. Defense makes a goal line stop. Patton sent me an email regarding Josh Allen that I hope was correctly answered by my monologue early this episode. It's essentially what I would have emailed back. Matthew has a question about Miami and an almighty take. He says, hi, Bruce. After all the comparisons between Allen's performance against Pittsburgh this year and last year, I tried to find a comparison for his potentially troubling performance against Miami. I think I have found a perfect comp in the Kansas City game last year. Allen went 17 of 33 for 179 yards, 5.2 yards per attempt, two touchdowns, a pick, 51.5% completion percentage, and a 75.2 quarterback rating against Miami. Against Kansas City, he went 14 for 27 for 122 yards, 4.5 yards per attempt, two touchdowns, one interception, 
51.9% completion percentage, and a 73.4 passer rating. As for the run game, the Bills ran 30 times for 143 yards and three touchdowns in Miami, and 23 rushes for 84 yards and no touchdowns against Kansas City. I thought this was a good comparison because Allen had a very similar stat lines in each game, along with a very similar ratio of rushes to passes. The game plans were both more run heavy than the average for the Bills. Obviously, the biggest difference is the Bills run game was much more effective against the Dolphins. And the defense was much better at stopping the Dolphins than the Chiefs. I wanted to know if you thought there were any insights that we could gain from comparing these two games. Do you think this could be because of strong opposing secondaries, weak opposing front fours, something else? or nothing at all, Matt. Now, Matt, I really, really, really like the comparison because this gives me an opportunity to say that the results were the same, but qualitatively, they're very different. So the things that the Miami Dolphins defense was doing are very dissimilar from the stuff that the Kansas City defense was doing. Steve Spagnuolo is a very different defensive coordinator than Brian Flores as a defensive mind. Very different. They believe in different things. Steve Spagnuolo is famous for blitzing corners and safeties all the time. Defensive backs blitzing with Steve Spagnuolo all the time. If you'll notice, Brian Flores and the Miami Dolphins have an organization that was built around two very highly paid cover corners who they're not bringing on blitzes. Very, very different. So the end result ended up being similar but they got there very different ways. So I think that that's really, really, really cool that Matthew correctly identified a game that had an end result that was similar without the path getting there being similar. Connor says, Hi, Bruce. Star Latulule comes back and the Bills get their first shutout in five years. Coincidence? Nope. While AG Epinesa and Groot were hogging the limelight with their pressures and sacks, our man Star was eating up two, sometimes three offensive linemen simultaneously. Sacks and pressures don't happen without a one-tech defensive tackle like Star, giving us a masterclass in what he does best. Wish there were more appropriate stats for a player like him so people can appreciate him. Hope all's well, and I'm still waiting on that Bills-Packers Super Bowl dream I had last December. You're right. Star Latulay played well. He actually sneakily got four pressures of his own from a one-tech position, which is pretty staggering when you think about it. Andrew says, hi, Bruce, is Josh Allen deliberately putting more touch on his throws to deliver a more catchable ball? I noticed this in the touchdown throw to Dawson Knox during the Dolphins game in particular. In the past, I feel like Allen would have thrown a dart, but he floated it to him. Josh also appears to be fading away and throwing off his back foot a lot instead of stepping into throws. Last year, he worked on his mechanics. The results showed, but he was throwing many balls hard. Did he do additional work during this offseason to put more touch on the ball? Perhaps this is a work in progress and the reason he seems off. Love your show. Andrew, Andrew, it does look to me like his mechanics are off. I'm not great with quarterback mechanics. I'm decent with quarterback mechanics. I can tell when things are off, but it's hard for me to communicate exactly what it is. It looks to me like Josh Allen is aiming the ball, right? He's not firing with the same level of confidence in his throws, and he doesn't look as relaxed. He looks a little tight when he's throwing it. So absolutely. I think there's something there, for sure. But that also means it's probably fixable. Tim says, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Didn't say good night. Come on, man. 
Truman Show. <laughs> I hope you and your wife are doing well. Love all the content you've put together. My thought and tinfoil hat theory I'm having is this. I don't think Josh Allen got enough practice reps for preseason because they wanted to protect their newly inked asset. While I understand the importance of having Josh healthy for the regular season, the last two games have not been his best. I also understand we've put Josh on an extremely high platform, and if he does not perform to the freak level, we hit the panic button. The next two upcoming games should have favorable outcomes, especially with backup quarterback play from Washington football team and the Texans. I could see Josh not at his 2020 level. However, this will complete his preseason for him and come out firing week five against the Kansas City Chiefs. That's when the season will begin. Once again, hope you're safe and well. Thanks for your time, Tim. Tim, I would be more inclined to believe this if not for two factors. Number one, other quarterbacks who didn't play very much in the preseason aren't having this happen to them. And Josh Allen didn't have a preseason at all in 2020 and came out guns blazing. So those two things make me think it's probably not the preseason reps. And I was wondering when this was going to come up because I know that there was some discussion about that. Also, Josh Allen in the preseason reps he did get looked amazing. And also in practice, all the reports were that he was glowingly great. So I just, I'm just not sure about it. I understand that's why you called it a tinfoil hat theory. You called it that because like, oh, maybe this. But I would go with highly improbable for me when it comes to the preseason reps in actual preseason game situations being the reason for Josh Allen's slow start. Ladies and gentlemen, we did it. Thanks for sticking around. I enjoyed today's episode. There are moments where I get a chance to go on some sort of crazy soapbox monologue at the beginning of an episode and just kind of gets the juices flowing, you know? You kind of feel like you're you're monologuing at a late night show or something. You know, Johnny Carson. I'm dating myself probably a little bit, but thanks for stopping by. And until next time, that's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Rumbles. <laughs>